Ashley, I know you didn't forget your Father's Day shopping this year. Me? Never. Good. But in the event that it may have slipped your mind, this is your friendly reminder that David Yerman specializes in timeless gifts that inspire. For expressive dads, there are so many great ideas. David Yerman amulets, pinky rings, and gemstone tags that are both rich in symbolism and style. For gentlemen who prefer a more contemporary flavor, David Yerman has beautiful pieces in forged carbon and black titanium. The house's modern cable-edge designs are sure to be a hit, too. And don't forget the timepieces. These are bound to be enjoyed now and passed down for generations. And for the man who has everything, handset diamond bracelets await. Browse the entire collection at davidyerman.com and don't delay. Midroll. Happy Saturday. It is June 4th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Ashley, you know what I've been doing today? I've been watching the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, all the marching and the trooping of the colors and this whole weekend that's going on. And it's like it's like getting season 4.5 of The Crown. You're sitting here waiting, and now all of a sudden you've got the big drama being the return of the Montecito Monarchs along with Archie, which just reminds me what some people call LARP live-action role-playing. This is like live-action role-playing come to life, but like you see the real people and the drama playing out right before you. So that's been my excitement this morning. It's just thrilling. I'm in Italy this week, as you know, with a bunch of our friends from the UK, and it's been really fascinating to listen to their perspective on this whole thing. Essentially, things in London are kind of shut down right now. People are coming into town for the Jubilee. Like, it's a, it's a legitimate holiday over there, and people are very excited. I'm personally a little bit excited to see how this Meghan Harry drama will unfold but I can't help myself. You know me, I'm a tabloid lover. I know. You got all weekend to watch it play out, but today is on the, they, they were not on the reviewing I don't know, platform, but on Buckingham Palace there, but it was lovely to see the family and to see young Prince George and Kate, and I'm a sucker for it. I'm a sucker for it. Who isn't, Michael? Well, we know what you'll be watching and doing all weekend long, but surely we have other things to talk about. We do. Got a great issue. What else is happening over there in Italy? No, well, I have to say I haven't been to Milan since 2019, so pre-pandemic. So I was here for a very quick trip, but it was really wonderful to see not only our newsstand. We have this incredible newsstand in Largo Treves. It opened several months ago, and it is spectacular and beautiful and a lot of fun. But it's been really great to meet some of our listeners over there. Michael, did you know that you're big in Italy? I did not know I'm big in Italy, but that's kind of you to say. I'm at Lake Como right now, as I said, and I'm here for the opening of this incredible new hotel called Pasolacqua. It's this fabulous woman, Valentina DeSantis, and her family owns the Grand Hotel Tremezzo. And this is really her passion project. And I have to say, I sent Graydon pictures like five seconds after I got here. I said, I think this is one of the most spectacular hotels in all of Europe, for sure. But there are a lot of fun editors and, and writers and all kinds of interesting people here. And every time I see someone, they say, Ashley, where's Michael Haney? Just tell him I'm up the road at Gato Nero having a little lunch and watching the seaplanes circle and land on Lake Como, one of my favorite things to do when, whenever I'm there. So I'm happy you're having, I'm happy you're in such a beautiful place. It's a perfect time of year to be there. I feel even more connected to you because I am now appreciating and loving your spiritual home. So there you go. There you go. All right. Well, let's talk shop. I think we should start with our view from here this week. Do you agree? Absolutely. We have a wonderful view and a very provocative view from here by Errol Morris. Okay, Michael, who is Errol Morris? Well, briefly, I would say he's probably one of the great documentary filmmakers of the last 50 years. 
an Academy Award-winning documentary filmmaker for such films as The Thin Blue Line, The Fog of War, The Unknown Known, and but also a tremendous thinker about the power of images in the world and how they shape our lives. We're very happy to have him on the show. Welcome, Errol. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on this, whatever this is. Is this a podcast, a broadcast? It's a podcast. Yeah, right? It's media. It's We're creating content. It's what everyone does these days. Content creation. Exactly. The first job I ever did for Netflix, which is now years ago, an executive at Netflix asked me, how are your content obligations? <laughs> and I said, what? My content obligations? Well, Aaron, we wanted to talk to you about your magnificent essay this week. Thank you for liking it. Well, it's it's it, we were discussing it earlier, and I think the context you bring to this moment, to this image, and I'll just touch on it for a moment. It's about the 50th anniversary of perhaps the most iconic photograph of the Vietnam War, which was taken by a man named Nick Ott and his Pulitzer Prize winning snap of Kim Phuc, the nine-year-old Vietnamese girl who became a face of the horrors of that war. And I'm wondering if you could just tell our listeners about it and why you wanted to write about it. I'm not sure I did want to write about it. <laughs> I was asked to write about it. It's. Did we get the curmudgeonly arrow today? No, this is the friendly arrow. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to get the curmudgeonly arrow. No, it's an important photograph. When you said iconic photograph, it made me wonder what makes an iconic photograph iconic. I have no trouble saying that it's one of the most important and most seen images from the war in Vietnam. That seems absolutely clear. What's less clear is why it's important and why it became iconic. This is no dearth of material about this photograph and about the photographer and Kim Phuc, who is the centerpiece of the photograph. I've also read repeatedly that it was a photograph that helped bring an end to the war in Vietnam. You know, it's hard to assess whether something like that is true or false or partially true or partially false, however you want to look at it. It certainly embodied, I can speak for myself, a certain horror of this war which I actively demonstrated against when I was a student, both at the University of Wisconsin and at Princeton. It's a war that I never had much use for. And of course, this may be the 50th anniversary of this photograph, but it's also on the occasion of a totally, for me, insane, irrational war in the Ukraine that I myself ask, how do we stop this? Well, Errol, this photograph, for people who may not have seen it, just to remind them is, as you mentioned, it's the young nine-year-old girl, Kim Folk, who was napalmed in the war, her village, where they were taking refuge. And she's photographed running naked down the road after she'd stripped off her clothes that were burning from napalm. And it did crystallize some opinion. And I think what we've been talking about a little bit in the office this week is exactly what you're talking about. In this moment of Ukraine or even in this moment of the shootings in schools in Texas, right, where people have even been debating, maybe if people saw what happened to children when they were shot by guns, that would really change people's perspectives on 
things. Do you think that an image is, as someone who makes images and works with images, do you think that they have that power? If people saw what happened inside one of those classrooms, what, would, would that crystallize opinion in a way that this photograph perhaps did? No. I mean, I, I believe in unintended consequences. You don't know. Hiding those images, I'm not sure, does any good. I mean, there was an intense debate about this image in particular because it showed, what's the technical term, full frontal nudity. Kim Fook had ripped off her burning clothes. She was naked running down this road. And there was a very good chance that the photograph, for that reason alone, would never be seen by the public. An AP photograph, which eventually ran all over the world. It was run in the New York Times, among other papers. It's really hard to say. I have this belief, it's a sad belief, that the human capacity for credulity, to believe anything, is unfettered. And you can look at an image, I can look at an image and say, well, it's obvious. Well, there's nothing so obvious that it's obvious. There's nothing that isn't subject to some interpretation, wacky and otherwise. Would it do any good to show the horrors of what happened in Texas? Maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. Do I think it's worth doing, showing, exposing people to the horrors of our own society, our own gun culture? I think yes, but would it provide the desired outcome? The sad thing is if people want to believe something, nothing is going to change it. It's a bad species. Let's face it. I sometimes tell people I'm really interested in replacement theory, but it's really, really replacing the entire human race with something, something more desirable. Errol, we find ourselves, as we mark the 50th anniversary of this image, we find ourselves in this really curious time in American history where we have so much discord. We're also facing this war in Ukraine that's being fought by the Russians. What was it like for you to look at this photograph in the context of all of that that's going on? My thinking is pretty much resolved about the Vietnam War. Because of my thinking about the Vietnam War, I made a film with Robert McNamara, often credited with being the chief architect of that war. I followed it with a film about Donald Rumsfeld. And I would often hear this criticism that the McNamara film was so much better than the Rumsfeld film. By the way, I don't agree because McNamara, although he didn't explicitly say, I am sorry, clearly expressed some kind of regret, the very least doubts about what he had done. And I look at the movie a little bit like I look at this essay that I just wrote for Airmail. I look at it as, as a cry of despair. McNamara, very near the end of the film, says, rationality will not save us. This is a line from a person who devoted his entire life to rational thinking, trying to come up with rational solutions to geopolitical problems. A rationalist par excellence. And yet at the end of the film, he tells us, rationality will not save us. To me, it is one of the most despairing, sad, bleak lines. And I'm a connoisseur of the sad, the despairing, and the bleak. It's one of the most sad, despairing, bleak lines I have ever heard. Well, Errol, thank you so much, not only for an incredible story, but also for all of your insights here and your deep thinking, as always. I'm not sure how deep it is, but... 
I like to think it is thinking, so thank you. I just encourage everyone to look at the, this story and the context you bring to these times. So thank you. Thank you very much, both of you. Take care, Earl. A handmade card and breakfast in bed is all well and good, but the dads in my life are getting something a little more serious this year. David Yearman specializes in timeless gifts that inspire, and the New York-based luxury house has great ideas for dads of all varieties. Whether he loves pinky rings and gemstone tags, modern designs from the Cable Edge collection, or a classic timepiece, David Yearman has this holiday handled. There are even hand-set diamond bracelets for the dad who truly has everything. Enjoy the entire collection at davidyearman.com and don't delay. Father's Day is Sunday, June 19th. If we didn't like Earl so much, we'd hate him, Michael. He's one of those guys who can do everything. He makes movies, he writes, he can talk. Like, yeah, he's giving me a bit of a complex. He's just one of those guys who brings great context to oftentimes not simply complicated issues, but brings context in when he connects two disparate elements that you've never really thought before and makes you see something new. And I think that's why, again, he's such a influential filmmaker. Have you seen any movies? No, I'm dying to see Top Gun 2. I feel like I'm the only person who hasn't seen it yet. I know. I haven't seen it either. Okay, so because I've been just basically sitting here having conversations over spritzes for the last 48 hours, everyone is talking about this. Sorry. Sorry. I did stay sober at lunch just for you. It's just so we could do this podcast. But it's funny because everyone's talking about this Johnny Depp trial, and I realize you and I haven't really talked about it yet. I have kind of a contrarian point of view, which is that I think this is conversely. I think that unexpectedly, this might end up being very good for both of their careers. How so? Well, I mean, I don't want to say Johnny Depp has been exonerated, but I think he certainly won in the court of public opinion, and he actually also won in a court of law. So I think his reputation, which he says was damaged beyond repair, I think is perhaps improving gradually or something. I don't know. And I think Amber Heard, a lot of directors, and she's been so visible, right? And people have strong views about her either way, but strong views and polarizing characters tend to generate a lot of box office dollars. So I have a feeling they're going to be given some opportunities. And if both of them can continue to prove themselves in the box office, bada bing, bada boom, like as crazy as it sounds, like this could be a PR coup for both of them. Look, all I'd say about Johnny Depp is the guy just needs to go back to making good adult movies where he shows his talent and not just sort of like spoofing and sort of like playing it with a wink and getting away with it. The guy's tremendously talented. I don't know if you saw, there were some images released this week from Bradley Cooper's forthcoming movie where he co-stars with Carey Mulligan and the makeup he's put on, he's fully transformed into Leonard Bernstein. He plays the maestro. And it reminds me, as I've said recently, there seems to be this trend now among actors, men, where you have Sean Penn in Gaslit basically disappearing into the role of John Mitchell with all this makeup. And now I just go look online, Bradley Cooper as Leonard Bernstein. You'll be amazed at, it doesn't even look anything like him, but I mean, I want to see Johnny Depp get back to some serious roles and not just cartoon crap. Yeah, I agree. He's become a little bit of a clown. He certainly looks like one, by the way. He could stand to deal with a little styling advice. Paging Anderson and Shepard. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so where shall we go next? Shall we talk about birth control? Well, we may be coming off of a strange relationship case. It's got a tangential connection to that. At least there were no kids involved in this. If, if we're going to be talking about birth control, I'm going to need that spritz. Luckily, we've got Flora Gill here to do all the hard work. Flora is a writer out of London, and she has a very serious take on all of this stuff. So, Michael, sit back and relax and let Flora do the talking. Welcome, Flora. 
Okay. The one, the only Flora Gill. We're not even going to talk about birth control, Flora. We're going to let you do that for us. So what inspired you to write this story lamenting the state of birth control for women? It was because I was talking to my friends and we were discussing how awful all the options were. None of us were saying, oh, I absolutely love taking this hormonal birth control that makes me weep once a month and still gives me cramps and makes me feel horrible. Or Okay, so what exactly are people doing instead of taking the pill or getting the IUD? What's the trend? So one of the new things we've been seeing is use of apps. So the big one right now is natural cycles that everyone's been using, which is where you basically take your temperature each morning. And then because your temperature changes at different points in your ovulation, the app can track when you are and aren't ovulating and kind of give you green days, which are go ahead and red days, which are use a condom still. It's become very, very popular, I think quite quickly. I'm a little bit cynical about it just because it freaks me out. The idea that we're relying on a temperature and an app, in many ways, it feels quite old fashioned. It's, it's a modern way of measuring something. It's quite an old fashioned technique of, of birth control. Um, and there's a whole load of things that you have to follow in order to make sure that you get more green days than red. You know, you can't always take your temperature when you've got a hangover. You've got to make sure that you're not getting up in the middle of the night to pee. There's a lot of other stipulations. Why do you think it is that we've made so many advances in feminism and found so many ways to improve the lives of women? And this is one area where it seems like we're going backwards. I think in general, there's not enough money or care put into a lot of the health issues that only affect women even. The ones that don't affect men tend to be massively underfunded. And I think this is one. I think everyone just thinks that women should groan and bear it when it comes to contraception. I mean, they've been for years trying to get out male pills and they have got one that's currently in testing. But whenever they talk to men about it, men are always like, oh, I'm not sure I'd want to take a pill that does that, that has any side effects. It's like, you've been relying on women to do that for generations. So with this Natural Cycles app and the popularity of it, I mean, you're leaving an awful lot to chance, right? It still feels kind of risky, like, or is it not risky? Well, it's supposed to be with Typical use, they say that it's 93% effective, which is pretty high. But I mean, that still leaves 7%, which is 7 in 100. And very few contraception is 100% effective. But the good thing is that with condoms, for example, when they're not working, not always, but sometimes you realize the thing that's slightly scary about these kind of temperature-based ones is that there's no indication that it hasn't worked. You don't know that it hasn't worked until you're like, oh, I'm pregnant. I think it's probably perfectly acceptable. I and mean, they said in an interview years ago, their ideal user was someone that was coming off birth control and would want to get pregnant in a few years time. So someone that it wouldn't be the end of the world if you got pregnant. But if you're 20 year old, who's really can think of nothing worse than getting pregnant, especially if abortion is something that you have issues with or that you have thoughts on, then I just think it's so not the right choice for you. And it worries me that so many people are blindly going into it. Well, Flora, thank you so much for speaking with us and thank you for your great story. We always love your take on this matter and basically anything you want to write about. We're here for it. (laughs) Thanks. I love coming on with you. Always fun. Always great to rant. Great. Thanks again, Flora. See you soon. Thanks. See you soon. Bye. Okay. Well, I need a break from all of that and I suspect that you do too. So let's take a virtual trip over to Park Avenue South. The restaurant made famous by Anthony Bourdain, who used to work there, is called Leal, or rather it used to be called Leal and now it's called La Brasserie. And that is because it has a dynamic new owner and a gentleman named Francis Staub. Now Staub, hmm, that sounds familiar. It is familiar because Staub is the manufacturer of the famous cocotte, a cookware piece. What do you call a cocotte in English, Michael? A Dutch oven? 
Yeah, I keep wanting to say coquette, but no, it's a sort of a Dutch oven, that big piece that sits on your stove, right? Or in your oven, if you're depending if you're making a roast chicken or something, right? Yeah. I mean, I have one. It's Le Creuset. It is not Staub, but a lot of respectable cooks I know use and love Staub. And apparently it's made this guy a fair amount of money because now he's in the restaurant business as well. And he had a great restaurant actually in New York called Le Coquerie Co. I think that was his first foray into the hospitality universe. It has since closed, unfortunately, although we used to love it. And now he is back with Leal and Alec Lebrano interviews him and talks about his interesting trajectory in the issue this week. And it's fascinating. And if you've never been to Leal and if you've never read Anthony Bourdain's book, highly recommend Kitchen Confidential. Let's take a look at something that happened way back in the 60s. A little bit of scandal that Whit Stillman tackles for us in the issue this week about a very curious happening in France. Yeah, this is a story you headlined, The American Who Saved Paris. And it's about how a former J.C. Penney employee from Minnesota, a young man, saved Charles de Gaulle from being toppled in a 1961 coup. And it's a riveting, unknown story from filmmaker Whit Stillman. We got filmmakers this week on the, on the show. The director of one of my favorite movies ever, Metropolitan. If you've never seen it, please watch it, as well as his other another film I love of his, Barcelona, or who might say Barcelona. But we've got Wit here today to talk about how he discovered this story and the man behind it, a man from Cloquet, Minnesota named Ronald D. Flack. And let's bring him on. Welcome, Wit. Wit, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, most of all, I mean, this guy is kind of like this silent American James Bond of the Loire Valley. But <laughs> how did you, I think that the story that I want to know is, how did you find Ronald Flack and how did you get this story? Well, I knew uh, Ron Flack through a great friend of his who was one of the key investors in Metropolitan and also investor in Love and Friendship and a delightful woman who often comes to Paris Socially, I got to know Ron and Danielle, his wife, and I heard this amazing story he had kept secret for all these years because he was very close to this general's family. They were his best friends in France from the late 1950s. He was very close to them. He didn't want to hurt them by explaining everything that had happened. So just to back up for a moment, because I've read the story and fall in love with it from the moment you sent it to me. Flack, it leaves Minnesota. He ends up in something called the CIC, which is an elite counterintelligence corps, which had members including Henry Kissinger, David Rockefeller, as well as J.D. Salinger, as you point out. And then he ends up stationed in in France in the uh, late 50s, early 60s, right? And he meets this family. But how does he come into de Gaulle's orbit, who by then was sort of out of favor, right? So uh, Ron Flack joins the CIC. It's the period when people were being drafted and the CIC grabbed him as a likely candidate, someone smart, sends him to language school in Monterey, California, um, immersion in French, drops him in France in May 1958, which is sort of a crucial time because when there was sort of a rumbling of military uprising that ended up bringing to go to power. And he was assigned to Samoa as a CIC agent, battling communist infiltration and keeping his eye on events. And when he was there, he became friends with this uh, wonderful family, the Bretagne family. In in these, these families, the Beauforts and the Bretagnes, everyone had died during the war. So 
or nearly everyone. So you're left with General Beaufort and his sister, Madame Bretagne, who were very close because they were survivors from the war. And Ron would go to this chateau that Madame Bretagne was assigned by the justice ministry to run. It was a rest house for the Ministry of Justice, and they had prisoners from the local prison uh, working there. And they had wonderful lunches every Sunday, and Ron became very close friends with this family. And through the family, became in touch with this key man, General Guy Groot de Beaufort, who became President de Gaulle's um, aide-de-camp for, for military affairs, his, his military chief of staff. But then, you know, there's the uh, instability in Algeria. De Gaulle's trying to navigate foreign as well as domestic stuff. Ron just sort of keeps getting this sense that there are forces conspiring against de Gaulle, right? Well, General de Beaufort helped de Gaulle come to Paris. He was sort of the key person in Paris when decisions were being made in May 1958. And uh, a lot of his action led to de Gaulle coming to power and, and de Gaulle brings him with him into the Elysee Palace, the presidential palace. And then de Gaulle sort of turned on those or, or, or changed policy from those who brought him to power. They had wanted him to help keep Algeria French, and he opened the door to Algerian independence. And there's this sort of growing feeling of betrayal among his military, his former military supporters. And General de Beaufort hung on for a long time thinking that, that General de Gaulle would change course, but he saw at a certain point that he wasn't going to change course. And he, and he rather turned against de Gaulle. And it became suspected that he might have been one of the plotters against de Gaulle. And then Flack goes to his office this fateful weekend and he sort of pulls together this document, right? What happened is that he was witness to a, a, a dramatic conversation between General de Beaufort and his sister, after which his sister, Madame Bretagne, started asking Ron all kinds of questions about immigration to the United States, what visas would be needed. And she seemed truly shocked. And Ron... Uh, gave this information to the CIC higher-ups who gave it to the CIA, who gave it to de Gaulle. And it really was tipping off um, de Gaulle to the fact that, or, or the implication that General de Beaufort was involved in the plotting against him. And that had pretty severe consequences for those plotters, right? I think there's a lot of loyalty and sympathy for General de Beaufort. So he was kept out of the plot, and he was the sort of effective man who might have made the, the putsch of April 1961, a more serious affair than it turned out to be. But at the same time, he was not castigated the way the others who went ahead. So in a sense, by tipping the authorities off, um, Flack might actually have saved General de Beaufort of a prison term because his closest associate was sentenced to prison for five years. Yeah. And of course, de Gaulle survives the putsch or the, you know, puts it down. And I love this. There, there's two details in here, like in any spy story, just how, how things turn. But you've got this amazing thing about how part of the planning was there's going to be these paratroopers that are going to land and, and, and seize the, the airport in Paris. And but there's all these young troops standing there waiting for orders. But suddenly they don't want to take orders. And why is that? The putsch of um, April 1961. One really happened in Algiers, and their tanks rolled, officials and, and higher-ups were arrested. It was completely disorganized in Paris. There were veterans and officers um, milling around the forests of Rambouillet. They got the date wrong. It was, it was just chaos. They didn't have that sort of controlling intelligence that General de Beaufort had provided um, in, in May 1958. It's a riveting story, Whit, and, and uh, you know, it even ends up with you 
saying, you know, de Gaulle shows his thanks to the Americans by backing the U.S. during the Cuban Missile Crisis. But tell us more about Ron and, and, and what his life became after this. He was really, really one, like, not just the, the greatest generation, but the quietest generation. It seems like, you know, these guys who went off to World War II or the Cold War and then just kept these phenomenal secrets to themselves, right? Yes. A last detail about the putsch is that there was about to be an atomic test, a French atomic test, one of de Gaulle's um, dear, his favorite projects was to develop a, a nuclear arm for France, independent of the United States. And they were about to do this test, and the actually bomb was in the hands of the, or under the control of the rebels for a while. But but loyal officers went ahead with the test before they could use it as a, as a threatening move. So Ron had a wonderful experience in Samoa. He fell in love with, with Danielle there. They had really a, a charming time going to chateau parties in the Loire Valley. And he went back to the United States without having made any firm plans to marry her, much to her silent consternation. And he gets back to the United States and it occurs to him that he's really in love with this girl and calls her and, and poses marriage. At the same time, he's looking for a job in Minnesota and he walks into an employment office and the man there says, you know, someone from the State Department was just by here and gave us these flyers on the Foreign Service and you sound like someone who could be good for the Foreign Service and they're just about to have an exam down in Minneapolis. And so he actually was going to Minneapolis for a fraternity party. He said, well, while I'm going there, I might as well stay on and, and take the test. And he took the test and, to his amazement, uh, passed the test very well. And so he was taken into the diplomatic corps, the Foreign Service. But there was a snag, which is that um, they won't take in someone married to a foreign national. And there's no way through normal procedures that Daniel could become a citizen in time. But his uh, senator had a very effective office, his Senator Hubert Humphrey, legendary senator, who had a, who had a brilliant uh, aide working there and said, there is one procedure procedure that before we accelerated um, someone becoming a citizen. And so they tried that and Danielle became a citizen on Valentine's Day and Ron was able to enter the Foreign Service. And later among their postings, the, the toughest of all was in Algeria because after independence, Algeria had a grisly history and a very oppressive regime. And in his time there, he actually shepherded Kissinger having secret meetings with, with the president of Algeria. When you heard this story, did you think to yourself, this would make a great movie? Well, I think that about a lot of things, but definitely I did think that, yes. I think it would be a great uh, movie. I don't have the rights. I'd have to talk to Ron further about that. All right, you have your homework. Yeah, when I do a movie, there has be a love story too so at least there's definitely that two for two you've got a you've got an american expat falling in love and in, in a beautiful surrounding and some uh, geopolitical complications as well and the day of the jackal tensions scenario exactly exactly we're already working on the casting so don't worry about that we've got plenty of ideas for you jimmy stewart is dead unfortunately <laughs> he would have been great for ron flag well as i said it's a riveting true story it's got romance. It's got a young American in the Cold War, Europe, and a spy story. And it's all woven masterfully by the movie writer and director, Whit Stillman. Thanks. Thanks for speaking with us today, Whit. Thanks very much. Yet another guest on the show that if we didn't like him so much, we would just hate him. He does everything too well. Listen, I mean, this weekend, if you haven't seen Witt's movies and if you haven't seen Errol's movies, you could probably just lock yourself in a closet and do only that. But I know that you've got something else you can recommend to us, Michael. 
please, anything. Well, it's like Wit's story. It's set in France, or it's French adjacent, I might say. And you're, I know you're going to say, what? You did that without me? But I'm saying, yes, I did, but we can go together. Last weekend, it was Brooke's birthday, and I went somewhere special. Now, you may all know Danielle Ballou, the great chef. He was 14 years old before he left his family farm outside of Lyon, where his grandmother cooked every meal from scratch. And weirdly, he had never been in a restaurant, but he decided at 14 he wanted to be a chef. A wealthy neighbor made a few phone calls for him and and eventually got his first stagiaire at a small one-star Michelin near the city. The rest, as you might say, is history. And now he's brought his history and the incredible tastes and flavors of those early days eating Grand Mare's cooking to life in La Gratin, his new restaurant in New York. That's a spin on classic Lyonnais Bistro. It's casual, it's relaxed, it's serving favorites such as crab salad, steak frites, oysters, and duck breast. And Ashley, all I'm going to say is you're fortunate enough to be in Italy right now, but for me, spending a night there, I felt like I'd been not only transported to an intimate little bistro in Lyon, but that somewhere in the back, maybe there was a little old grandmother who'd cooked it just for me. So La Gratin in New York City, open now. Heaven on earth. And you, darling. And you, darling. I will take you there. We'll do a lunch as soon as you come home to me. Hooray, hooray. Okay, I've got a TV show for you, Michael. It's a new comedy on Showtime called I Love That For You. Have you seen it? I have not. So tell me all about it. Okay, this is great. Well, it stars the comedian Vanessa Bayer. She plays a character named Joanna Gold, who is a survivor of childhood leukemia. And there are a lot of weird premises in this story, but they all really work together. So we catch up with Joanna. She's an adult. That's where we first encounter her in the series. And she has long ago since recovered from leukemia and now is pursuing her dream of becoming a host on a home shopping network. By the way, home shopping networks are really having a moment in television right now. First with Hacks, now with I Love That For You. Anyway, and you know, Vanessa finds herself telling a little bit of a lie, which is that she might have leukemia now. Anyway, she does not in the show, but she gets caught in this lie that gets bigger and bigger and bigger as these things tend to do. And it's extremely funny. It stars Molly Shannon, Matt Rogers, Jennifer Lewis, a really wonderful cast of characters. It's extremely funny and also like very poignant and heartfelt. And it's based on true events. In fact, Vanessa Bayer did have leukemia as a child. So it's a really personal story for her and she treats it with a lot of humor and gravitas. Fun. I will look at it. Thank you. Of course. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. We wish you a wonderful weekend. And Michael, will you please read us out? I will. I just want to just tell me what do you got planned this evening on you? Is this your last evening in Italy? Let us all live vicariously. Are you getting on like a little boat tonight and going somewhere great for drinks? What did it tell us? I already did boating for lunch. I'm sorry to say. No, we're having spritzes in about an hour and then we have dinner out here. There are some twinkle lights going. There's a band. Last night there was a DJ. We may or may not have danced to the Spice Girls. I will never tell. But it's been wonderful. So if you're in Lake Como, come on over to Pasalacqua. Say hello to Valentina. She's wonderful. I really have never seen a hotel quite like this before. I know for a fact our listeners and readers would love it. It's got to be great because it even allows you to record with great sound in your room. So there you go. I think this should probably be our new studio, to be honest. Remote studio. Okay. (laughs) 
Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitale. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. Most of all, thank you again for joining us.